If you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 16. Good to be here with you guys this afternoon. You know, I was not supposed to teach today. I got a text from uh, the Honorable Right Reverend Dr. Mike Powers in the back over there. Uh, I got a text yesterday morning and it said, my throat feels terrible. Can you teach for me on Wednesday? I said, sure, great, I'll do it. So be, be, be praying for Mike. He, he sounds like he's smoked cigarettes for half his life. Uh, so, and he's supposed to preach not this Sunday, but the one after this Sunday. So pray that he gets better by then. If not, I guess I can preach. So don't pray too hard. No, I'm joking. Anyway, uh, good to be here with you guys. What I want to do is uh, I want to actually begin with actually reading through this great apostle's creed. You know, I've been thinking through the different doctrines that, we, that underpin this creed, and it'd be good just to read it. So I'll read it for you guys. You have it here in the, uh, the first part of your, your, your notes. In fact, if you don't have this sheet, go ahead and raise your hand, and then someone would love to give you a copy of these notes. So I'm going to go ahead and read this for us. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he, uh, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's a great creed. So many of our essential Christian doctrines, the things that make us unique, come from this creed. They are articulated in this creed. And today, I want to think about that third line, where it says, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. You know, Al Mohler says this. He says that Christians are defined by one primary mark. Here it is. We believe in and are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes Christianity different from every other religion is not necessarily the morality. It's not necessarily the way that we think you should do good things or not do bad things. The primary distinction between Christianity and every other religion is Jesus. That's why whenever someone comes to your door, they knock on your door, Jehovah's Witness or uh, a Mormon, don't spend your time working on peripheral things. Ask them, who is Jesus? Because ultimately, if our view of Jesus is wrong, we serve a different God. Jesus is the key component of our faith. Muller also says this, says, uh, the largest portion of the Apostles' Creed is devoted to Jesus. In fact, we should see the Apostles' Creed as a confession of Christ with an introduction and a conclusion. Ultimately, this creed, even the creed is about Jesus. I talk a lot about today is what does it mean to truly be Christ-centered? What does it mean to rest your whole hope, everything you are, 
on Jesus. I think Matthew 16 is a good place for us to begin. So if you're there, uh, let me give you a little bit of context. So this is the part of the Gospels where Jesus is asking his disciples who people say he is. Notice what it says in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. It says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus says, Hey, what's the word on the street? Who do people think that I am? What are people saying? And I said, well, you know, there's, there's debate. Jesus, there's, there, you could be John the Baptist. You could be Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said, no, 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 no. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the ultimate question. You know, I have two kids. Gracie, she's eight months old. And Apollo, she's three. And eventually, Jesus is going to ask them. Who do you say that I am? doesn't matter your daddy's a preacher, he's a pastor. Doesn't matter, I, I know what he thinks. Ultimately, who do you say I am? And that's the question that every single human being has to answer. What do you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so many of us were sold on a Jesus who is not really Jesus. We were sold a political Jesus who, who takes sides. We were sold a moralistic Jesus who says, just be a good person. We were sold a therapeutic Jesus who says, tell me all your problems and then leave me alone. That's not Jesus. Who do you say I am? That's the question. Who do you say Jesus is? And I love Simon Peter's response. Remember this? It's in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Christ, and you're the Son. You know, on the Day of Judgment, we will be defined by our Christology, meaning we will be defined by what we think about Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? You know, ultimately, um, Jesus should be the point of our, every sermon. Remember, there's this great story of uh, Charles Spurgeon, famous British preacher, who when he was young in his ministry, he was invited to preach at some church, big church, and he was, he was very young in his ministry, and he was very nervous and timid. And he goes up to the pulpit, he's very, just, he's very scared, and he sees etched into the pulpit, and etched into the wood, this phrase, Sir, may we see Jesus. Sir, may we see Jesus. Ultimately, the goal of every sermon is that. Show people Jesus. You know, I work in college ministry. We, we're calling new leaders on our, our leadership team for, for, for college leader students. And uh, we took them to John chapter 1 today, mainly with a student. And we looked at how John the Baptist is one of the greatest examples of a spiritual leader. Because it says that, you know, people said to him, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? Doesn't matter. I'm not the Christ. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then later on, you have John the Baptist with two disciples who are following him. And the text literally says, John said, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that two times. And then the author writes this, the two disciples no longer followed John and they began following Jesus. That's spiritual leadership. Behold, the Lamb of God. Does your life and your lips point to the Lord Jesus Christ? Ultimately, what does it mean to be a spiritual leader? It means to point people to Jesus. Sir, may we see Jesus. Remember that great uh, poem by St. Patrick? Not the leprechaun, the pastor, St. Patrick. had this great poem. And he says this, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. It's Christ. Christianity is about Jesus. And so who is Jesus? Who do people say that I am? Really, the question is, who do you say that he is? That's the topic for, the, for tonight. I want to give you two things. Two answer to the question, who do you say I am? Here are two correct answers. We'll talk about how Jesus is the Son and he is the Lord. Two, two easy identification marks of Jesus. He is the Son and he is the Lord. So you saw in the Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean he was created. It doesn't mean that God is Father the way that I'm the Father of, of, of Apollos. That at one point in time, he didn't exist, then he did exist. That's not what that means. When the Bible talks about sonship, it, it's not necessarily talking about there once was a time when the son was not. Which, by the way, that's, a, that's an old, ancient, heretical line of a poem. There was a guy named uh, Arius, and he, he coined this poem, a song. It said, there once was a time when the son was not. He completely misunderstood sonship. That's not what the Bible's talking about. In the Gospel of John, sonship is divinity. When John writes about Jesus Christ as the Son, what he's saying is, Jesus Christ is God. It's important John's Gospel. It is a central theme of the Gospel of John. Maybe you remember that good statement there, end of the Gospel, which summarizes the whole book. He says, look, Jesus did many things, not written in this book, but these are written. That you might what? Believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So John is very concerned that we understand what it means, one, to believe, and two, that Jesus is the Son. I want to show you a few places in John's Gospel where he talks about sonship is divinity. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Look at me in verse 14.
course, John has that great introduction. Mirrors Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You look at verse 14, look what it says. And that Word, that eternal Word that was with God and is God, became flesh. And He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. That's a word reserved for Yahweh. Yahweh has glory. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only what? Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does it mean to be a son? It means He has divine glory. He is co-equal with the Father. That's what it means to be a son. It means He's God. But also, look what happens in chapter 1, verse 45. See where you see this Son of God language again. So John 1, verse 45, this is this great text where you have um, Philip and Nathaniel. And I'll begin in verse, um, let's begin in verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Get this, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I see everything. I know everything. I'm aware of everything. And look at Nathanael's response. Nathanael understands sonship. Look what he says. Verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son. He understands if you know everything, if you see everything, if you have complete omniscience, you must be the son. Not a son, the son. He has omniscience. But also look with me in chapter 3, verse 16. When you're growing up, this is the verse you you memorize, right? John 3, 16. It is wrapped up in John's theology of sonship. Take a look at it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the Son is able to give you life. Not any kind of life, eternal life. Therefore, he must be eternal. Sonship is linked to divinity. See it again, we keep going. Look with me in chapter 5. So John chapter 5, look with me in verse 20. In this text, we have Jesus explaining his unique relationship with the Father. And he uses sonship language. Look at me. This is John 5, and it's in verse 20. He says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In other words, I have a special access to the Father. A unique access. The Father loves me in an eternal, divine sort of way. 
sonship is divinity. That's what it means. But sonship isn't just about divinity. It's also about agency. Agency. Let me explain what that means. You know, in a Near Eastern context, this is where the Bible is written in, in a Near Eastern culture, the thought was that sons represent the father. A son represents his father. And when the father wanted to extend his authority, send a message, well, he, would, he would send it through a son. You're the eldest son. That's what it means. A son is an agent. Take with me to the parable of the wicked tenant. Remember this? So you have this, 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 great, this guy who is sending people, and he says, you know what? In verse 13, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And they beat him, and they kill him. Why? Because sonship is agency. And the father takes it personally, not just because that's my boy, but they did that to me. Sonship is agency. God sent his son on a search and rescue mission to this earth. God sent his son to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus' point in that, in Luke 20, he says this, verse 17, he says, But he looked directly at them and said, what, Why then is this written, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. His point is this, I'm the son. I'm the son that the father sent into the vineyard and the workers beat and killed. And we did it to, to him. You did it ultimately to me, says God. Sonship is agency. In fact, Jesus is not the only one in the Bible who is called God's son. Luke 3.38, Adam is called God's son. It says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. That only makes sense if you understand sonship as agency, as one who is sent with a mission. So Adam's mission was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, extend the Imago Dei to every corner of the earth. That was, that was Adam's mission. He was an agent of God. Adam is my son. But then also, Israel is called God's son. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Remember the context of this where you have Pharaoh trapping the people of Israel in Egypt? And God basically says to Pharaoh, let my son go or I won't let your son go. If you're going to enslave my son, I'm going to kill your son. The firstborn son was killed. Israel is called God's son. Why is that? That only makes sense if sonship is agency. Israel was tasked with this. In you, all the nations will be blessed. You are to represent me on earth. Israel was never meant to be secluded to themselves. No. Israel was the agent through whom God would make his glory known. Declare my praise among the nations. Israel is God's son. Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Agency. Sonship is 
agency. And get this, one of the great truths of the gospel is that you and I have been adopted as sons. That doesn't just mean we're part of God's family. That, that is true. We are part of God's family, but there's also a very important missiological component. We are sent. Sonship is agency. I'm sending you on a mission. You represent me. It is deeply missiological. You represent God on the world stage. Which means if sonship is agency, you've been sent. You've been sent to your neighbors. You've been sent to your vocation. You've been sent to your family. Some of you, you'll be sent overseas. But if you're a son, it means you're sent. It means you represent your father. It means you work to declare his praise among the nations. Jesus is the ultimate son. And he makes us sons. Jesus is the son. Switch gears a little bit. He is not just the son. He's also our Lord. Christ our Lord. Yeah, that word Lord is interesting. It's the Greek word kurios. It's often used for the word king. Either way you can translate it. Lord. Master, king. I think king is probably a word we're most familiar with. So let's use the word king for a little bit. You know, how do you know? How do you know that Jesus is our king? Well, you think about it. He shows up on the stage, on the, on, on the scene, and he immediately begins declaring war on our enemies. Immediately. Read the Gospels. He's declaring war on our enemies. You have four ultimate enemies. Ready for it? Sin, sickness, demons, and death. Everyone in this room has four basic enemies. Sin, sickness, demons, and death. And what Jesus does in the Gospels is that he gets on the scene and he immediately wars against them. Think about it. Sin. He lives a righteous life. Romans 8 says this, says he condemns sin in the flesh. He confronts it. He does not succumb to it. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. Jesus is warring against sin. But also sickness. Remember the healings? I mean, Jesus would touch a leper. Get this. He would touch a leper, and the leprosy would leave the person. That's like an amazing story. Like Mark's gospel, Mark, I'm pretty confident, is an old man in a rocking chair telling stories to his kids. Okay, just rocking back and forth and says, oh yeah, and then that one time, Jesus went up to this leper. And you don't touch lepers. And he touches the leper. What happened, Grandpa? Well, the leprosy left the leper. What happened to Jesus? He was fine. It's amazing. Right? Jesus is warring against sickness. Over and over and over. He's healing people. But also, demons. You know, I, I, I love the demon stories in the, the Gospels. Because they're so scared, aren't they? I mean, they are terrified every single time. It's like, oh no. <laughs> Not Jesus again. So I think my, my, well, my second favorite demon story, I'll give my favorite one in a second. My second favorite demon story 
is in Matthew 8 and in Mark 4, both kind of there. And it's when that man is full of, of demons. And uh, they uh, say to Jesus, my name is Legion, for we are many. In other words, there's a lot of us in here. My name is Legion. There's a whole bunch of us in this man terrorizing him. And uh, apparently, there's not enough of them because they ask to be sent into the pigs and drown. <laughs> and I like how, you know, Matthew 8 gives a little, little tidbit of information. He adds this little line. They say to him, have you come to torment us before the time? In other words, now? I thought it was going to be in a few years. I got my eschatology all wrong. Like, today's day we're all going to die? Aw, oh, man. Right? Jesus is, is scaring the demons. But also, you have in Acts chapter 19, remember this one with the, the sons of Sceva? And this guy says, I adjure you in the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Remember what happened with the demon? He talked back. That's, that's scary. And the demon says to this man, he says, you know, Jesus I know. And Paul, I heard of Paul. But who are you? And then Luke writes, the demon leapt on them and mastered him, and he beat him naked and wounded. So there's all kinds of wounds there. That's emotional wounds, physical wounds. I mean, he, he beat the pants off him, what he's saying. I love the demon stories in the Bible, because then James chapter 4 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's not because he's scared of you. It's because he's scared to death of the one who is in you and for you. Jesus steps on the scene and immediately declares war on our enemies, and they run and they flee. So you have sin, sickness, demons, and the last one, death. He's warring against death. The cross and the resurrection is how Jesus defeats death. Think about it. Jesus takes death's greatest blow and he gets back up. Well, that's because he's Lord. He's king. He's come to defeat an enemy. Look how Hebrews says, he wants to release you from lifelong slavery of fear of death. What he does. He comes on the scene and he declares war on his, our enemies because he's Lord. Go a little further. What, what exactly does lordship mean? I'll give you a few things. I actually want to go to Colossians 1 to make these points. First one is this. It means that Jesus is Lord over creation. That's what it means. He's Lord over creation. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 is one of the great Christological books. The first chapter is uh, full of doctrinal statements about Jesus. It picks up in verse 15 is where we're going to go. Colossians 1 verse 15. Notice how Jesus is Lord over all of creation. Look what it says, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold 
together. So what does it mean he's the firstborn? It doesn't mean he was physically born first. That's not what that means. He's first, not chronologically, but theologically. Meaning Jesus inherited everything. He says in Matthew 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That word given, in the Greek, it's the aorist tense. It's the tense of completion. It's done. It's finished. All authority has been given to me, not just in heaven. In heaven and on earth. Meaning, everything is mine. And yet, in an interesting way, Jesus already had authority over creation. You see it in the Gospels. Remember in Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms a storm. Remember this? I'm going to read it for you. John, uh, Mark 4, verse 39 says this. And he awoke, I love this, this phrase, and rebuked the wind. Rebuked. Like, you do that to your children. He rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? This is Lord over creation. That's who he is. He commands the wind. He commands the sea. And the wind and the sea obey him because he's Lord over all of it. Remember when he multiplies matter? Remember this? When he he feeds 5,000? I mean, the laws of physics, he just breaks all the time. Matthew 14, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and they said, there's a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy their own food. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, look, we, we only have five loaves here and two fish. By the way, a little pause. That's how... How often? That's how most preachers feel before they, they preach. God, I got five pieces of bread and two fish. And I need you to multiply this. Right? I need you to feed your people. That's a different sermon. Either way. I got five loaves of bread and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Jesus is multiplying matter. The laws of physics bow down to the king of creation. But also, remember, he, he walks on water. I mean, over and over and over in the Gospels, he is showing, I am Lord over creation. I don't need a boat, no boat, no raft, no problem. I'll walk on water. He's Lord over creation. That's what it means. But, but also, Jesus is Lord over the church. He's Lord over creation, but he's also, he is Lord over the church. Hopefully you're still in Colossians. Look with me in the next few verses. Colossians 1, verse 18 through 20. See how Paul shifts now to draw our attention to the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be first place, preeminent. Because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He did all of that for the church. You see, Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus sent his spirit to empower the church. Jesus has confidence in the church. The gates of hell won't prevail. Jesus is not going to give up on the church. Ephesians 3, verse 8 through 11, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, get this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, he saved Jews and Gentiles, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is Lord over the church. You think about it, Jesus is worshipped here. His word is read and obeyed here. His people are gathered here. His mission is launched from here. Think about it, the church is God's plan A for the nations. The gates of hell, not going to prevail. You think about it, we're called ambassadors for Christ. But an ambassador is always connected to an embassy. The, the embassy doesn't make you a citizen. Right? If I go over to another country, they don't make me an American. No, I, I am an American citizen. The, the embassy recognizes who is a citizen. The embassy provides support to the citizens in different countries. Well, in a very similar way, our citizenship is in heaven. And so the church is an embassy for ambassadors. It doesn't make you a citizen of heaven. It simply recognizes that you are. And it helps you and it protects you and it provides for you. We should love the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. He's not giving up on the church. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He is king over the church. Got one more. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over the church. But also, get this, Jesus Christ is Lord over the Christian. Over you, individually. Jesus Christ is your Lord. He's your King. He's your God. Look what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 20, 21. It says this, And you, so he's, he's narrowed down, all of creation, the church, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Think back with me in chapter 1, verse 13. He has transferred us 
from the domain of darkness and deliver us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Jesus captured our hearts. He captured our minds to worship, love, and serve him. This is so critical. You have to understand lordship. We have to get a good grasp on what does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? You think about it this way. All sin is a lordship issue. All sin. Boils down to this question. Who's on your throne? Who are you bowing down to? What are you worshiping? What are you putting as first place? What are you devoting your allegiance to? All sin is a lordship issue. I'll give you two examples. Of course, we're in college ministry, but these sins are not just relegated to college ministry. It's, it's everyone. Two sins. Sexual sin and pride. When it comes to sexual sin, have you noticed that when Paul addresses sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6, he unpacks what people call a biblical somatology. The Greek word for soma is the word body. A somatology is a theology of the body. He says this, Jesus owns your body. That's his answer, sexual sin. Don't do that. Why? Jesus owns owns your body. You don't get to make executive decisions about your body. You're not the executive. You were bought with a price. Jesus owns your body. I'll give you an example. So we're selling our house, moving to a little bit house closer to the, the church, and our house is under contract right now. And the people who bought our house, they said, in the purchase agreement, they said, look, we want to buy your house, and, but we also want the fridge and the playset in the gazebo, and they put it in the purchase agreement. We'll buy your house, but not just, we're not just buying your house. We're getting your fridge, your playset, and your gazebo. In a similar way, Jesus said, I'm going to purchase you, and I'm not just purchasing your heart. I want your body. I want your calendar. I want your vocation. I want your wallet. I want your family. I want your future. I want your mind. I want everything. He is Lord over the Christian. Completely Lord over every aspect of your life. The purchase agreement has everything in your life. Sexual sin. But then pride. How is pride a Lord to be? Well, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if Jesus Christ is Lord, there's no room for pride. Everything you have is a gift given to you from God. I'll give you an illustration. My three-year-old son, Apollos, sometimes he gets in trouble in the early ed center. Sometimes. Sorry, Dr. Q. He's coming your way eventually. You know, he's been uh, going to the teacher, and he, he, he keeps saying no to her. Apollo's, you know, clean up your cubby. No. And so we're talking about that, and so I, I said, Apollo, why do you keep saying no to your teacher? He says, well, because I'm in charge. <laughs> okay, there, there seems to be a lordship issue here. <laughs> so to teach him a lesson, uh, this may be a bad lesson, but anyway, I'm going now. 
We get home and uh, we park in the in the driveway. He's in his toddler seat, the back seat. He's, he's, he's buckled in. And I said, so Paulus, why did you say no? He goes, because I'm in charge. And I said, okay, if you're in charge, unbuckle yourself and get out of the car and walk inside. And he just looked at me. <laughs> and in a similar way, how much more arrogant are we when we harden our heart and we clench our fist and we say in our soul to God, no, God, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my future. I'm in charge of my finances. I'm in charge of my vocation. I'm in charge, fill in the blank. It's the same thing. You're not in charge. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in charge. And if that's true, lordship requires obedience. This is Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Don't, don't just give me lip service. Don't just call me Lord. Live like it. Jesus Christ is Lord over the Christian. So by way of application, not on your, your notes, but I get, thought about five applications for this. We've seen that Jesus Christ is the Son, and He's Lord. How do we apply this? I've got a few ideas. Number one, if He's Lord, we ought to repent deeply. We ought to repent deeply. So much of our repentance fails because we repent on the surface. Here's what I mean. God, I did this. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. That's not bad, but it's not that good either. Why? Jesus, I replaced you in my heart. I did not treat you like you were Lord. I did not treat you like you were the most important person in my life. I failed to submit to you as Lord. Forgive me of that as well. We should repent deeply. But also, we should pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. Think about you and I have access to the King of Heaven. Unlimited resources, unlimited power, unlimited sovereignty, unlimited wisdom, and he says, pray. Ask. Seek. Knock. I'll answer. Pray expectantly. Thirdly, we should share clearly. Share the gospel clearly. Here's what I mean. The lordship of Jesus Christ needs to come out in our evangelism. What we're calling people to do is we're calling them to repent and submit to his lordship. This is not just a decision. You write your name on a card and stick it in your back pocket and you go to heaven. That's not how it works. Look, Jesus calls all of you. He wants you to turn away. I mean, the biblical metaphor is death to life. The metaphor is from darkness to light. The idea of repentance is a 180. You're turning. Jesus calls you to submit your life to him. But also, we should worship joyfully. Worship joyfully. We serve a God who is king over everything. He has, no, he, he has no enemy who is his equal. God is not... I read a great book by John Piper. Uh, it's called Desiring God. And he has one chapter about the, God's delight in being God. He says, look, if you had unlimited sovereignty, 
and unlimited abilities, you'd be unlimitedly, limitlessly happy. We serve a God who has no enemy who is his equal. We should worship joyfully. Come into the presence with gladness. And finally, so we should repent deeply, pray expectantly, we should share clearly, worship joyfully, but here's the fifth one, live powerfully. Live powerfully. Romans 1.4 talks about how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. And Galatians 2.20, you know this verse, been crucified in Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by the flesh, I live in the flesh, I don't live that anymore. By faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You have, you're a believer, you have the spirit of Jesus Christ in you. Live powerfully. Jesus Christ, he is our Lord and is also the Son. Join me as we pray. And so, Father, we're grateful that you are indeed the Son, the Son who came to rescue us from our sins, the Son who was sent by the Father, the Son who humbled himself and took on flesh, the Son who died on a cross and rose triumphantly and was declared to be Lord and King and God. And God, I pray that we would see you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and King and God. Help us to repent of the places we have replaced you. Help us to live in the power of your Holy Spirit, who you sent to us, saying, it is better that I go, so I can send the Spirit to empower you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do it. In Christ's name, amen.